When Mordecai had learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud, bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate while clothed in sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his degree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Hathach went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of a written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king and make supplication to him, and entreat him for her people. Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a message for Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside his inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out his golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king's palace for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you would escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast, as you do. And after that I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and minds this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. So, the book of Esther, it's got a lot of different things going on. Most obviously, you might see it as the story of a young girl that becomes a queen. Or you might see it as a story of God's power, how he delivers the people of Israel yet again from another group that are trying to hurt them and oppress them. Or you may even see it as a story about the way that hatred and anger can bring about our own destruction. As Haman goes out to seek out to kill the Jews, but ends up dying because of his actions. But a theme we might overlook in the book of Esther is a pretty simple one. It's what we just talked about in the children's sermon making choices, making decisions. And this can apply to anyone. In fact, the average adult 
will make at least 35,000 decisions every single day. Now let's put that into perspective. Let's start counting. We're not going to count any of the decisions you made as a kid. We'll go when you turn 18. If we start counting at 18, the number of decisions you've made, by the time you're 20, you've already made 25,550,000 decisions. By the time you're 30, you've made 281,050,000 decisions. By the time you're 40, that number nearly doubles. By the time you're 40, you make 408,800,000 decisions. And by the time you're 75, a grand total of 728,170,000 decisions. It's almost beyond what we can understand as humans. Every moment of every day we're making choices. From the time we get up in the morning, when we decide if we're going to get out of bed or hit snooze again, to what do we want for lunch? Are we going to pack a ham sandwich? Are we going to eat peanut butter and jelly? To the end of the day, when we're deciding if we're going to go to bed on time or if we're going to stay up just a few more minutes to do something else. Throughout the day, we're given these decisions of how we talk to others, what type of work we do, what type of decisions personally we make. Are we being good to ourselves? Are we getting enough sleep? Are we practicing hygiene? Are we being nice to others? The decisions are constant. It's one continuous stream of decision-making. But sometimes we come to decisions in our life that are a little bit more important than if you want to pack a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. This is the type of decision Esther is faced with. It's a crossroad. She can't go back. She can't go straight forward. She has to choose left or right, one or the other. Although the thought of saving a nation seems so far removed from us that we think it couldn't possibly apply to what we're going through. When you think about it, what Esther has to decide and what we have to decide, there are only two options. We can go with the expected thing, the thing that's comfortable, easy, but not necessarily the right thing. Or we can choose radically to do the right thing. Now, some people would say, well, you have a third choice. You can be neutral. You can just not do anything. But if you think about it, that in and of itself is a decision. By doing nothing, you're doing something. If someone's rude to you or cuts you off in traffic and your reaction is to do nothing, that's good. That's a positive decision. But if you see someone struggling, someone that needs help, and you choose to do nothing, that's a negative decision. It's like the story of the boy that goes into the candy store and his father says, you can pick one type of candy. And he looks around and he sees the Reese's and he sees the Whoppers and he sees the Sour Patch Kids and he sees the Hershey's Kisses and he gets so overwhelmed and he's, I want everything. And his father said, no, 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 go back, you can pick one. So then he sees the York Peppermints and he sees the Starbursts and he sees the Skittles and he says, no, 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 Dad, I can't decide. I, I need to pick more than one. And the dad says, pick one. So the boy looks and looks again, and finally comes back, and his dad says, one, one type of candy. And they leave the store empty-handed because the boy could not choose one. Even in those moments where we say we can't choose, where we say we have to stay neutral, we still are choosing 
making a choice. What is easy or what is right? Now you would think with two choices, decision making would be pretty easy, wouldn't it? Well, oh, well, it's right or wrong. That's super plain and simple, black, white, right, wrong. It's great. But when you get down into what causes us to make these decisions, it's a lot more uncomfortable to make the right decision because it's a very personal thing, decision-making is. Something that happens in our minds, and it's motivated by three things. Our own personal ideas and motives, the things that affect us. The influence we have from the people around us and the influence from how we feel people as a whole act. Now, here's what I mean by that. The first thing, our own motives. Let's look at Esther. She's comfortable. She's settled. Sure, her life is not perfect by any means, but she's a queen. And for the standards of the time, she is living in luxury. She has servants and eunuchs, people that wash her hair and oil her skin and take care of her, prepare her meals. She has a place to sleep at night. She's comfortable and she's settled. How often are we like this? We are in our routine. We are in the groove. We are doing our thing. And it comes time to make a decision. And we go with the easy thing. The thing that lets us keep right along doing our thing. The thing that is the path of least resistance, so to say. Well, we might go home from work and we're tired and we know we, we, know we should call that friend or family member that hasn't been feeling well lately or we should send a card or, you know, we should really volunteer more and help in our community, you know. We should do this. We should do that. We should. But our time is limited or we're tired or we don't feel well or we think that we don't make a difference. And so we choose to continue what we're doing. We care more about our own comfort sometimes than we do about doing the right thing. We also have influences in our lives. Influences from our friends, our family, the people we work with. We have tons of people in our lives that we interact with every day. Here in this story, it's a very rare case of someone being a positive influence. Mordecai tells it like it is. He's very honest with Esther. He says, if you don't do this, someone else will. And you were given the position. Shouldn't you take advantage of that? Most of the time, it's the other way around. It goes back to that comfort thing. Don't tell me peer pressure just exists among teenagers because it's at every age. Because you, as an adult, as a child, as a teen, even as a person of retirement age, are expected to follow specific guidelines of this one thing, this one thing to fit in. Now, most commonly we think the age-old story of teens that are out partying and abusing substances. But what about young adults? A lot of times there's that tendency, even on through college, to make poor decisions based on the people you hang out with. 
grow a little older. What happens when you get in your 40s and 50s and you have the midlife crisis, or so it's called? It's all things we just kind of brush off as a thing of the age. You can do it. It's fine, you know. You can be hateful because you're this age. Or you can be lazy because you're this age. But when it comes down to it, we are each our own person. We each have the choice, no matter how old we are, no matter where we are, to do the right thing or to not. There was a bulletin board up in the school that I went to high school at. And it said, you are the five people that you spend the most time with. Think about that a second. You are the five people you spend the most time with. If you're spending time with other people that kind of bring you down, then you're going to go down. There's always the thing that um, I feel like every parent loves to say of people will bring you up or people will bring you down. So you need to be with people that will bring you up. Mordecai is one of these people in the story of Esther. He's motivating her. We have to make sure that we surround ourselves with people that are like-minded in the sense that they want to make those decisions, even when they're tough. The third thing is a little more abstract. It's a little further out. We've talked about ourselves, about the people near to us. Now let's talk about what's normal. Same continuing thread of being accepted. We have things that are easy to do. Esther knew the danger. She knew what the law was. She knew that if she went before the king, it was death or at least being outcast for her. We do the same thing to a lesser extent. It's uncomfortable to go against what everyone else is doing. Here's an example that may seem so small. Have you ever been around people and they all have a unified hatred for someone you work with or someone that you're around in general? And how easy is it to start hearing the, well, you know, I just think that he's doing this because of this, or I just think, well, he doesn't deserve that position, or she doesn't need to do that. And how easy is it to get drawn into that? Even if that's founded, even if the person is a grump, or even if that person, you know, is not fun to be around, we are still called to be Christ-like in our love. And that means when people don't deserve it. Looking to Esther in a life-threatening decision and looking to our own discomfort It's so far away, but it's so similar. It's so close because we have the same cop-out. It's not the way things are done. We say it to ourselves all the time. I have a story about someone I used to work with. Names were changed to protect the innocent. Um, There was a girl that I worked with, and um, she had a boss that was notoriously grouchy. She would go behind you and nitpick on things you did. And she would have um, something to say about everything. You could be, you know, I worked in the bakery. You could be done with your stuff, 
working on things for the next day and there would still be an issue that you weren't helping her with what she needed you to do to help her date be easier. Now, there was this girl, and most everyone else in her area could not stand the woman, and she talk, they talked horribly about her and said really inappropriate and cruel things about her. She was older, and she wasn't married, and her daughter was an adult, and you could see that she was lonely and didn't really have anyone. And this one girl that I worked with, for some reason just really was above and beyond nice to her and tried to help her. And all of the rest of us kind of like felt funny about it because we're like, you know, what's the deal? You know, she's, she's that way, you know, just try to avoid her, just try to not. But this girl I worked with um, just really was invested in trying to get to know that lady. And eventually my friend had to transfer She had to move away for college. And when she got a different job, she came and told us all about the fact that she was leaving. And all of us were sad because, you know, she was fun to work with. She was cool. But the person that was the most upset was our manager. And she went to her and just talked and talked about how much she loved her and how much it meant to her that she was there for her. And my friend came and told me, yeah, I had the weirdest thing. Um, She told me that she reminded me of her daughter. Now, this is a small situation, but I've always thought about that, and that's always stuck with me. How often do we get so wrapped up in our own stuff that we don't think about what other people are going through? Now, this manager, you know, as far as I know, she still works in the same area, and she still has the same life. But I always kind of hope that, you know, maybe the next time I'll be a little nicer. Maybe the next time I'll do a little more. Because if something as simple as being kind can completely change the way a person acts and bring them so much joy, then, you know, why aren't, why aren't we nice to everyone all the time? It's so hard. Because we get wrapped up in what we need and what we want and what's comfortable and what's not. So if we have all these things affecting our decisions, what we want, what the people around us want, what our group, what our society as a whole thinks is good, how are we supposed to make our decisions without getting caught up and whirled and twirled around and just pulled every way? Seems like a super simple answer. Really hard to put into practice. In verse 16, it says, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days or three nights. And I and my maids will fast as you do. Now, we don't tend to fast that much anymore. But what do we associate with fasting? Praying. Communication with God. Coming to that place where... We're open with him about what we're trying to do and what we need help with. If you had to run a race and you knew the person that set up the track, would you not want to talk to them and be like, hey, I need some help, you know. I have to decide whether I want to do this and buy these running shoes or if I should do this and do more strength training 
or, you know, what should I do? If you could talk to that person and know that they cared about you and wanted you to succeed on this race, would you not? God is our maker. He's created us. He's created the world that we've lived in. And he wants us to be successful. He wants us to grow. He wants us to make the right decisions. And a lot of times, if we just take a minute to stop and to be still and to pray and say, God, I have to make... and draw on that strength. Even more so, we can learn to live with the outcomes because guess what? Good things don't always happen when you make the right decision. I've been in situations where it's even been the other way, where things have gotten worse because you make the right decision and you feel like, well, what's the point? I might as well just go and do what everyone else does because nothing's changing. We can't let ourselves get to that attitude. We have to draw strength and feel empowered by the fact that God is with us and he wants to help us every step of the way if we will call on him. What happens may not be perfect. It may not be anywhere near perfect, but it has a purpose. Each choice we make, God can use to grow us. And we may have some growing pains, and it may be uncomfortable. It may not be the funnest thing to take time out of your week to do a Bible study. But guess what? It might be the right thing to do. And it may not be the greatest to have to hold your tongue when someone is talking at work about how much they hate whoever It may be hard to get along with people we don't want to get along with. To build on what we've been talking about the past couple weeks, it's hard not to take sides. And it's hard not to take things personally. It's hard to make decisions based on what God wants rather than what we want at the present moment. But when we get to that point where we understand that God's using us where we are for such a time as this. We are all in different places. We all have people that we can bless through our decision making. When we get to that place where we understand we're exactly where we need to be, then all we have to do is make the choice. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, we're going to stand together and sing our closing hymn, and it's in the Cokesbury Hymnal. And it is on page 87. Blessed be the tie.